This is The Sharpen Podcast. I'm Ashley, the creator and producer of this show. This show would not be possible without Rocky Talkies. Rocky Talkies are backcountry radios designed by a small team of climbers in Denver, Colorado. These radios are extremely lightweight, durable, and they work in the extreme cold. They have impressive battery life and solid range. They just launched their new waterproof hand mic accessory, which allows you to stow your radio in a pack and keep communication right on your shoulder in heavy snow and water conditions. Make your adventure safer by purchasing a set of their radios. I take them on every single backcountry adventure and they've saved the day on several occasions. If you like discounts, get 10% off your radios by going to rockytalkie.com slash sharp end. Washington State's Mount Baker is an exceptional place to learn the art of glacier mountaineering. With over 20 square miles of glaciated terrain and routes for all skill levels, this volcano is not to be missed. The American Alpine Institute has been offering courses and guided ascents on Mount Baker for 48 years. That's 12 years longer than I've been alive. AEI's program options include three and four day guided summit ascents, a six day comprehensive mountaineering program, a six day summer ice climbing program, or a private program that fits your specific needs. Look more at alpineinstitute.com. And don't forget, the American Alpine Institute is giving away a $1,000 tuition voucher for any public group course. There are only two more weeks to enter. I'll be doing the drawing on May 15th. This voucher is transferable and expires December 31st, 2024. To sign up, visit my website at thesharpenpodcast.com and you can enter right on the homepage. My guest today, Matt Randall, was feeling super strong, confident, and really fit last year. He had a stack of incredibly exciting objectives lined up for his entire season. On May 9th last year, 2022, he set out to do a solo ski mountaineering link-up of the South Maroon Bell to the North Maroon Bell, two very striking peaks just outside of Aspen, Colorado. He didn't end up going solo, though, and he didn't end up skiing down. The story gets better. I have Matt here to tell you his remarkably lucky story. I hope you enjoy. My name is Matt Randall. I'm uh, 30 years old. I was born and raised in Brighton, Colorado, and I spent 27 years uh, there. Went to school, served in the military there. Uh, I moved out to Salt Lake City about three winters ago. Um, And yeah, I'm a passionate uh, ski mountaineer, and um, I started skiing in 2015 and got into climbing in 2020. And um, yeah, the outdoors have had a pretty big impact on my life thus far. Mm-hmm. And you're and you're in Salt Lake City right now. Correct. Yep. I'm in Cottonwood Heights. And you're having the most epic winter of all time right now. It's like snow po- snow apocalypse over there right now. Yep. We just got a couple more feet of snow on top of a very impressive snowpack already. So yeah, it's been a really good season. Um, we've had good stability, good snow. Uh, yeah, can't really ask for more. My best friend lives in in Salt Lake, and he was telling me that people are skiing things that have haven't been skied in years and years and years, and they're skiing these things before anybody's even awake. <laughs> yeah, um, I think a, a, I know a handful of groups that have skied the West Slabs, like the Medusa Face, which is um, basically in the summer it's a, a slab rock climb, um, 
and so it has enough snow on it that it's like borderline skiable um (laughs) yeah it's 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 a good year all around for sure well good okay and um again thanks for being on the show and what are we talking about today um so i'll be talking through an incident i had on south maroon peak which is uh one of the 14ers in the aspen area of colorado uh this occurred on may 10th of last year so 2022 and i basically hit a ski or hit a rock with my ski and i fell almost a thousand feet down uh south maroon peak and a thousand feet down yeah i think i set the fastest known descent on it potentially wow (laughs) um but yeah so i i got incredibly lucky um I had zero injuries, but it scared the hell out of me, and it was a big wake-up call. Um, and yeah, like I just want to preface this kind of story with a few statements to set the stage for the lessons to learn after the fact. Um, this was in no way, shape, or form an accident that was outside of my control. Um, I was and am 100% responsible for the mistakes that were made. And I believe it was 100% avoidable. Um, I think they were there were negative behavior and thought patterns that led into this incident. And again, I got extremely lucky. Um, so just for the listeners, keep that in mind as I tell this story. There's things that you'll probably pick up on that, you know, kind of lead into the incident. Right. I'm still I'm still sort of hung up on the fact that you slid a thousand feet and you didn't get injured, but I'm sure you'll get into that. So we'll take, we'll pause that there and I'll let you just tell the story. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, all right. Yeah. So last year I spent the winter in Salt Lake city and I was training up for a ski mountaineering trip that I was taking to Pakistan in the summer, um, with some friends. And so the whole goal of the winter was to just get out a lot, ski a lot, get nice and fit and build my confidence. And so that's what I did. I got a lot of time skiing in the Wasatch. Um, I was feeling really good. And so in April, I went up to Montana. And one of the friends that I was going to go to Pakistan with, Chris Kusmal, I stayed with him for a month. And we skied some stuff, some bigger lines. And, you know, again, this is still just continuing to build my confidence um, that season. Uh, After that, I went to the Pacific Northwest. on the way I skied like Bora Peak, did it, you know, and, and most of these were kind of by myself as well. Um, so, you know, going out solo in the backcountry is kind of something I really enjoy, but it also, um, you know, doesn't leave a lot of room for error. But anyways, so went out to the Pacific Northwest, skied some bigger stuff out there as well, continuing to build the confidence. And after, uh, after some time in the Pacific Northwest in early May, I decided to come back to Colorado. I wanted to hang out with friends and ski around Colorado, kind of my old stomping grounds uh, for a month before leaving for Pakistan. Um, and since Aspen is on the way, uh, I kind of decided to stop in Aspen. And there's been a little link up that I'd wanted to do for a couple of years, and it was to try to ski uh, South Maroon and North Maroon peaks in a single outing. Um, you kind of would ski the east face of South Maroon, which is over some couple hundred foot cliffs. Um, so it's definitely like, you know, you look at it and it's classic no fall terrain. And then you would get into 
a little steep snow gully called the Bell Cord, and you would climb that back up to the ridge, climb up to North Maroon, and then ski what the kind north. Of, what kind of climbing is is that? Is it snow or is it mixed or what does that look like? Uh, definitely just snow. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a steep snow filled uh, gully, and you can just kind of boot pack up it. Um, it might be a little icy, so like crampons are good, but nothing technical. Um, just kind of straightforward boot packing up. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, that was kind of the plan was I was driving back to Colorado to see friends and do a final month of prep before Pakistan and, uh, stopped in Aspen to try to do this link up that I'd wanted to do for a couple of years. And again, I was feeling very confident, um, feeling very fit. And so I thought it was, you know, well within my, uh, wheelhouse at the time. Mm -hmm. So May 9th, I got into Aspen and I actually found out that, I had some friends in the in the Aspen area, um, and they were also going to go try to ski South Maroon the next day. They they were only doing South Maroon, or at least that was their initial plan. Uh, so, kind of chatted with them, and I decided to still go solo. Um, and so the next morning, May tenth, uh, probably I forget the time, but it was really early because you have to bike the closed r- road up to the Maroon Bells. Um, kind of like main area where like tourists will go in the summer. And what and, kind of approach is that? How long of a bike ride is that? Um, I believe it's, I think it's like six or seven miles. Um, That'll warm so on me a, up. <laughs> yeah. So on a bicycle, it's not too bad. And I was actually right. staying with um, Art Burroughs. He's one of the authors of the 50 classic ski descents of North America. And he let me borrow his uh, e-bike. So uh, pretty much the the approach bike ride was, was kind cruiser. of yeah it, it was I mean I I had a fully charged battery so I set it to turbo and just I barely even had to pedal and I think I was going like 20 miles an hour on the way yeah. up so that was that was very nice um yeah so I got up to the trailhead locked up the bike and what started time did you get to the trailhead ooh um that's actually I I think I probably got to the Maroon Bells area right around like 5 a.m. or so. Um, that Those are actually some of the details that I'm a little fuzzy on because I just didn't like um, write those down or anything in my like after accident mm-hmm. um, review. But it was definitely early, like especially in the springtime. Um, you're trying to catch the snow when it's still frozen before this, the day warms up. Uh, so very early starts. I might have even been there earlier than 5 a.m., probably like 4 a.m. Um, yeah, very, very early. But yeah, so I kind of just, you know, I saw them at the trail, like at where we were parked and just kind of said hi and talked for a second. But then I rolled out solo because that was my plan. And I started skinning. And as I was, so there's a couloir to the south of the summit of South Maroon. It's called the Y Coolar. And <clears throat> I was booting up that Coolar and I saw them below me and eventually they caught up to me. And that's when we kind of stopped and decided, Hey, like I told them, they knew that I was trying to link up both of the Maroon Bells. And one of them started to kind of, um, you know, he, he, he thought that sounded like a good idea. And so he was trying to convince the other two to do so. Um, 
So there was some talk of, you know, kind of joining forces and becoming a team, but it wasn't for sure yet. So I was still just kind of climbing on my own at my own pace, not really like saying hi to them and stuff, but I wasn't making decisions with them. I was still in the soloist mentality. Um, and so we can, we keep going and we get on the summit and then that's kind of when their group decided, Hey, we would also like to ski South Maroon peak and then go up onto North Maroon as long as stuff is still checking out as safe and then ski North Maroon with you. And so at that point we pretty much were unofficially a team. And so at that, at that point I should have changed my mindset from being a soloist to now being a contributing team member um, Mm -hmm. in decision-making and just talking about stuff and not operating on my own. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, we basically became a team, but then once we skied off the summit, I was still in the solo mindset. And I kind of remember not even really like discussing anything and just kind of skiing off the summit um, did you ski first? Yep, I skied first. And again, like, <laughs> I didn't really give time to discuss anything. I just kind of started going. Again, just very much in like the soloist mindset, and I hadn't shifted gears. Um, and so I skied past um, my buddy Alex. And you kind of ski down the ridge towards the, the southeast. Um, so like if you fall right there, you're going to go more onto the southern aspect of the peak. Um, you you have to go down this ridge, and then it kind of drops over the east face. Um, so I start skiing down the ridge. It was pretty windy that day, and so all of the snow on the upper peak was very firm just because the wind um, was keeping the snow really cold. Were you able to even, like, get it? I mean, you say firm, but were you able to get an edge in with your ski, or was it so hard pack that you couldn't even get an edge in it was definitely edgeable um it just wasn't like you know in the spring you kind of everybody always talks about corn skiing when you can like really dig your edges in it definitely wasn't anything like that but it was definitely edgeable um it wasn't anything by itself to be concerned about um but since it was very firm i was making uh, jump turns and so i was you know basically trying to get my skis 180 degrees around just so that I don't um, get too much speed. And then since it is firm, if you get too much speed, maybe you blow an edge and then you could fall. Um, So I've made a few tentative turns. And so if you just imagine going down this ridge, off to the right is kind of a, a slope that drops off and you can't really see what's below it. And then to the left, right on the ridge, um, there's some exposed rocks and um so i'm skiing like pretty close to these exposed rocks and you know in hindsight i should have just kind of given them more berth but so i make two jump turns and then when i'm going to make the third jump turn which would kind of point my skis back towards those exposed rocks i make that third jump turn and i don't get my skis all the way 180 degrees around and so if you can imagine I land with my skis slightly downhill, so they start to slide forward, and my uphill ski runs into pretty much the last exposed rock that there is, 
And so it just stops my uphill ski right in its tracks. From rotating um, all the way around. Exactly, yeah. And so now that uphill ski has completely stopped and the downhill ski continues to go forward. So if you can imagine, it kind of twists me and I kind of rotate backwards. And it was kind of a slow, awkward rotation backwards. And then I kind of fall back. Um, and so, yeah, I rotate backwards. I fall and I start to get into this uncontrollable fall because, again, the snow is pretty firm. Uh, and so in my head, I'm just like, oh, crap. Like, I have now just fallen in terrain that I know inherently is no fall terrain. Like, like I would not expect to live falling off of this peak, and I have now just uh, fallen. And so I fall, and I have, I actually caught, um, I had my GoPro on at the time. Uh, and so I fall, and I, like, after the first tumble, I audibly say, you know, like, oh, fuck, because I realize the predicament I'm in. And so I fall over an initial small little cliff of rocks. It's probably a couple feet tall, um, but I get some air, land. I'm still in snow. Somehow I fall onto that southern aspect of South Maroon, and I fall into this snow couloir. But I don't know this in my head because things are just moving too fast. In my head, I think I'm falling over the east face, which I think is, you know, imminent death. I'm kind of waiting for... Impact. I'm Yeah, I'm waiting for <laughs> big air and then big impact. Um, and so in my head, I'm definitely thinking, like, I am about to die. Um, and in my video, you know, there's a couple, uh, like, blood-curdling screams of a man who thinks he's about to die. Um, and funny enough, after the fact now that I can laugh about it, it kind of reminds me of the, the yells that Homer Simpson makes in the <laughs> Simpsons when his tongue is like out and flapping around, but wait, so yeah. what were you, can I just pause for a second? What, what mm -hmm. were you thinking? You, I mean, you just said that you were thinking, okay, I'm, I'm waiting, I'm bracing for some traumatic impact and then I'm, I know I'm going to die, but what other thoughts were you thinking in those moments? Um, I think since, so when I first ran into the rock, I, you know, was thinking of how to try to arrest myself so that I don't start tumbling. And once I started to fall uncontrollably, I kind of knew that I was at the will of whatever terrain I was falling over. Like there was no way that I could really do anything in that moment. So pretty much the only thought was just... Like, I'm about to die, I'm falling uncontrollably, and there's nothing that I can do about it at this instant. So those pretty much were my thoughts. Like, I didn't have any coming to Jesus moment. I didn't think of my mom and dad, you know, like, I love them, but that's just not how it happened. I didn't, I didn't really have any uh, grandiose thoughts mm -hmm. on this fall besides, like, <laughs> I'm about to die. Right. Um. And so, yeah, I start, you know, falling down. One of my skis pops off. Um, the other ski stayed on for a second, and it caught the snow, and it kind of caused me to kind of fly through the air. I ended up doing a face plant into the snow. I think that popped my sunglasses off. 
And then after that, I was going feet first down the steep snow couloir. Um, and in the video, I'm, I, it was actually pretty funny looking at my like Strava data. Um, I think I reached like 40 or 45 miles per hour. Um, so I accelerated down this snow slope going feet first on my butt. Um, I didn't really try to roll over onto my stomach to try any kind of self arrest. Um, I think just in the moment, like everything was happening so fast. Um, I didn't necessarily think about that, but so I started going down on my butt feet first, start getting going really fast. And at some point, one of my mittens, I'm trying to kind of claw at the snow on my back and one of my mittens gets ripped off. So I'm trying to claw at the snow with the, my exposed hand. Um, and the, as I fall down, the snow starts to soften up. So there's, you know, less, the, the mountain is now kind of protecting, um, or it's kind of keeping the wind at bay. Um, and so there's less wind and I'm on a solar aspect. So the snow is just getting softer the farther I fall down. And so at some point, I don't know exactly what happens, but I slow down enough to where I like finally kind of realize like, oh, I now have the ability to affect change. Like I can do something to, you know, make this better. And so I'm going slow enough and I finally turn over onto my stomach and dig my elbows in and I'm finally able to self-arrest. Um, and so, yeah, that was, you know, I, I had just fallen a, about a thousand feet down South Maroon initially thought I was going over the east face, ended up in a steep snow couloir, and somehow was able to arrest my fall. And so at this point, I start to kind of, you know, assess what's going on. Um, I knew I was in a place that I didn't want to just hang out in. Uh, because I knew my rock fall above you or snowfall above you or... Exactly. And, right. And it's a southern aspect. So, you know, snow starts to warm up and get pretty, um, pretty weak. And so you can, you know, trigger a, a wet slide or something like that. So I, I distinctly remember thinking in my head, like, okay, I don't know if my friends above me can see me. Like, I have no idea if they are able to, you know, discern whether I'm alive or not but I know that I need to get myself out. And so I start kind of thinking through the process of getting out and I realize, like, oh crap, it is a bright sunny day. I'm in a bunch of snow and my sunglasses, you know, got ripped off my face when I face planted. Um, and my eye was a little scratched up. Um, I mean, and so I guess like rewinding, I realized once I stopped, that, wow, I have no injuries. Like I did a little check, nothing was hurting my hand. I lost some skin on my fingers just from trying to claw into the snow and stop. And then there was a little bit of blood dripping from my face. I, and it was just from the face plant that I made. Uh, but I but realized no other like, injuries. That's yeah, insane. I, I realized I, you know, just had, I had extremely good luck that day. And I didn't twist a knee or an ankle or anything. Um, so I knew I was capable. And so at that point, that's when I was like, okay, I need to get myself out of here 
because I don't want to be up here. Like this is not a safe place to just hang out all day. You don't have um, any skis though. You don't have sunglasses to protect your yeah. eyes from snow blindness. Yep. So I realized, you know, I'm going to have to boot pack out of here. It's going to suck, but I need to get it done. Um, otherwise, you know, like, you know, I just got lucky, but I might not be lucky if I stay out here all night. And did you realize um, at that point that you were on the south side instead of the east side? Or were you still kind of confused about what side of the bell you were on? Yeah, once I arrested myself and probably like towards the the lower portion of my fall, I definitely realized I was not going over the east face because I started to recognize some of the terrain. Um, I basically fell down a couloir that re um, that met up with the Y couloir. And so that's where we had gone up. Um, so I definitely realized like, okay, <laughs> I did not go over the East face, which is mm-hmm. probably the luckiest thing um, that happened. Um, and I start to realize like, okay, I, I'm in the Y Kular and we went up this way. I know how to get down this. But yeah, I don't have any skis. I don't have any poles and I don't have sunglasses. And when I realized I didn't have my sunglasses, you know, that's important just because out in a, on a sunny day with all that snow, you can go sunblind pretty easily. Um, and so as soon as I thought that like, Oh crap, I might go sunblind. I'm going to need to like really squint doing this. Um, my sunglasses literally plopped in my lap. So I'm like leaning against the slope and then my sunglasses, do they just fall into my lap? And I remember just like looking at them and just picking them up and putting them on like, you know, like, oh, my sunglasses, you know, like it was just one of those weird moments where I extreme thought about luck. <laughs> extreme luck. Yes, exactly. Like I have this thought like, oh, I might go snow blind trying to get out of here because I don't have my sunglasses. And then, you know, they just plop into my lap. And it was definitely a crazy coincidence. Um that that happened. Um, so yeah, I put my sunglasses on and I start to, you know, boot pack my way down towards the Y Kular where I know that we have a boot pack that we went up that I can at least get. And as I'm starting to boot down, um, I start to see more debris coming down from above and it's not anything alarming, but it's just more of like, I notice and I see my friend, Alex Neal, He's skiing down and he has both of my skis and both of my poles um, on his backpack and he's skiing down towards me. And so somehow both of my skis and both of my poles got stuck in the snow or something. And he was able to. You have a angel. I, <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I expected that my skis were just down further and we're completely lost, you know, like I'd written them off. Um, but yeah, here comes my guardian angel, Alex Neal, with both of my skis and my poles. And we ended up just, you know, skiing out of there um, because it connected into the Y Kular. And eventually I realized that one of my bindings had delaminated from the ski. So it wasn't my skis weren't 100%, but I was still able to ski out of there without even noticing it. And this was very mellow terrain at this point. So even if, um, even if I would have noticed it and I wasn't able to get an edge or something, um, this wasn't terrain that, you know, if I fell again, it wouldn't have been an an issue really. It would have just kind of been frustrating. Um, but that was the only gear, uh, 
damage that I got was just one binding delaminating. So basically just a pair of skis is all that I lost um, from this incident. But And some skin on your fingers. <laughs> yeah, and some skin on my fingers, which regrows. <laughs> which regrows. <and laughs> scratched eye and a little bit of scrapes on the face. But yeah, in general, got absolutely lucky that yeah. I didn't twist a knee or anything. And again, I was, you know, I had a big trip to Pakistan in exactly four weeks from this incident. And so any kind of injury would have completely derailed that. Yeah. So I got absolutely lucky and we were able to ski out um, and everything, you know, like was for the most part fine. Um, besides the fact that my three friends had to watch their friend fall down a mountain where they thought like for sure they were watching their friend die. And one of my friends, he is actually watched a friend die. And so that was pretty tough for him. Um, and I felt terrible to, you know, put him through that. Um, and that's kind of like a whole other thing, but that's pretty much the, the, the summary of the incident. Um, were you were you and that friend able to sort of discuss about you know what went wrong and and the lessons learned and and that you were sorry about that and that you that you actually like realized what what had happened and maybe you triggered some of some stress injury or PTSD for from him? Yeah, so we had lunch um I think probably a week or two afterwards and we talked through a lot of things and at this point Cause I, I knew I had this trip coming up. And so I knew that I like, okay, I need to mentally digest what just happened. And I need to like kind of figure my stuff out really quick because I'm about, I'm committed to this trip with friends and it's a trip I want to go on, but you know, we're going to Pakistan and we're going to like ski real terrain that I need to make sure that I'm mentally prepared for. So I, I sat down and I wrote out a word document and I basically tried to highlight things that I saw um, were negative behaviors or thought patterns that led into this incident. And then I tried to um, boil those down into, you know, what I could do in the future to try to minimize those, uh, those negative patterns. And so I already had this kind of draft of what I had done and I sat down with my friend and we kind of discussed it and we basically kind of refined it. And, you know, that was basically my roadmap for like, okay, this negative event happened. Here's what I think led into it. And here's how I think I can handle it effectively uh, moving forward so that it doesn't just like derail all of my plans and turn me into someone who doesn't want to go ski ever again. Yep. Yep. So we did get together and um, kind of discuss through some of that. Good. And what were what were the lessons that you learned, Matt, that you want to share with the listeners? Yeah, so I kind of came up with four lessons. The first one is very overarching and I think applies to everybody. Uh, the, the last three are probably more uh, aimed towards type A males. <laughs> um, I, they're, they're things that I see a lot in my friends and other like male skiers and adventure athletes out there and not to like nobody's perfect and I'm not saying that I like now know I have the key to you know operating with a clear mind in the backcountry but um I think they definitely 
gear more towards like the type A males, which is a lot of the folks that are out skiing. So Do you consider yourself a type A male? Uh I mean, like I am gold oriented. Um I enjoy like I'm slightly addicted to improvement, you know, so like, you know, doing bigger and better things or um you know, just like training effectively, stuff like that. So I would say yes and I I think I'm susceptible to these. And again, like I'm a work in progress. Everybody is. Nobody's mm-hmm. perfect. Um, well, I am. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think in general, females, they just, you know, don't um, don't have these negative traits as much. We all have them, but I see it more so in males and specifically males who are kind of like trying to go do the biggest, gnarliest things and like stuff like that. So, but yeah, so the first uh, lesson is basically kind of generally dealing with negative events. So this was obviously a negative event and I only had four weeks till my trip to deal with it. And so in 2019, I read a book that really changed how I think about negative events. It's called Learned Optimism by Martin E.P. Seligman. Um, I've boiled that book down like years ago into bullet points on a Word document. So if anybody's interested in viewing that, I can easily send it to you. Um, Just get a hold of me. But anyways, it talks about how resilient and optimistic people deal with negative events. And that's through rationalizing the event and determining how it affects you personally, pervasively, and permanently. And so Pessimistic people, they're more prone to a negative event taking control of them and having a negative outcome on them. And they're more likely to think that a negative event will is completely their fault. Like it there was it was all their fault. They're more likely to think that it will affect everything in their life that's very pervasive. And they'll also be more will uh more likely to think that it will Uh, that the effects of that negative event will last forever, which is the permanent part. Hmm. And so um, he argues that more optimistic people are able to rationalize through that and actually see how, like where they are responsible, like how much of it is your fault? How pervasive is this to other aspects of your life and how permanent is it? Um, And so again, in general, you know, I applied this kind of thinking strategy to this negative event. Um, And so at least for my incident, um, I realized that I was 100% responsible for skiing into that rock. Like it was there. I could see it. I should not have been that close to the, to the rocks. Um, And that sucks to know that like I messed up 100%, but it also kind of give you power to be like, okay, well, you can easily change that. Like just don't ski near rocks. Um, so that's one that in... owning the behavior too is really powerful. Yeah. Like maybe I could have said, you know, like, Hey, Oh, the wind was keeping the snow firm and you know, it was just the firm snow. It caused me to like make a bad turn. Like, no, I made a bad turn. Like I should have either made a complete 180 degree jump turn so that my skis didn't slide forward. Or I should have just been further away from the rocks. So that was that's an example of me like owning the 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 personal part of it. Um, as far as the pervasive part, 
Luckily, I wasn't injured, and so the actual incident didn't affect much else in my life physically, Um, but it definitely left me shaken up uh, mentally, and especially on the first peak that we skied in Pakistan, I definitely had a pretty hard time skiing over the, skiing off the summit, um, and just kind of mentally being prepared and like seeing you know, I definitely was looking down the slope like, oh man, if I fall, like I'm definitely going to die. Um, so it was pretty tough kind of mentally dealing with that. Uh, but, you know, I knew that I had it in me to not fall. And so it made me hyper vigilant. Um, and then as far as permanence, I knew that just because I had that incident uh, didn't mean that I was never going to ski steep committing terrain like that again, or be able to. Um, I just knew that I needed to learn from it and approach the mountains in a different way. And so that was, those, those are just three examples of my kind of rationalization through that incident. And again, it's, you know, identifying how you actually are responsible for things in a negative event and not getting hung up on the things that are outside of your control. Um, and I think that was something that allowed me to somewhat bounce back from this incident and then go on a very committing trip overseas on terrain that, you know, is also very committing. Second lesson, and this is more of like what led into the incident was a normalization of high risk that eventually led into complacency. And so you know, I highlighted that I was doing a bunch of training that winter and I was feeling really confident. And I went into the spring, I started to do bigger lines, more committing lines, and it just built my confidence day by day. And at some point it started to feel like big committing lines were kind of just another day, um, which is good from a confidence standpoint. But if you get a little too comfortable you can get complacent and then you're not fully present in the moment when you're doing these high risk things. So yeah, skiing off the summit of South Maroon, my mental state was not prepared to ski a no fall, uh, no fall mountain. Like I should have been very dialed in and very much aware of like, okay, there are rocks to the left. Let's give them some space. But I wasn't, I was, I kind of rolled into the ski descent as if it was just another day and you know I ended up paying the price luckily that price wasn't that big but the normalization of high risk skiing and then the subsequent complacency that I exhibited showing or that I exhibited while skiing led to a very small mistake that could have had very very large consequences the third lesson is a want and a need for uh, external validation. So, um, you know, I started skiing later in life when I was 23. And, you know, I've always just like wanted to impress my friends and, you know, show them like, oh, I've only been skiing for X amount of years and I did this. Um, you know, and everybody wants to impress others. Like, I, I think when people say that they don't want it, they don't care to impress others, I, I think they're to an extent lying. Um, I think everybody has a little bit of a need and a want for external validation. I think the main thing, though, is not letting it affect you in your decision making. Um, And I think at least for me personally in this incident, 
you know, I was, you know, skiing these big lines and I was posting it on social media and showing like, oh yeah, I just skied, you know, like the Northwest Kular on Shuxin solo and breakable crust, you know, like I was doing these things that I was proud of, but I was also kind of showing them to my friends uh, to kind of seek validation. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting that you could, yeah, you see that in yourself and you, you acknowledge it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A dangerous I mean, space to be in for sure. Yeah. Especially when it just kind of like drives your decision-making a little bit. Yeah. Um, and I still, I don't think that that want and need for external validation like I don't think that was the only reason I wanted to ski the maroon bells but it definitely had a part to play um and so I think at least just for the lesson for others is you know you don't need to be this altruistic person who only skis for themselves like I I think there's very very few people who can truly say that they ski or climb or do whatever just for themselves um so don't don't set that up on such a pedestal that you know you you like that you can't ever try to impress somebody like everybody has it just be aware of it and try to not let it affect how you make decisions and how you operate in the mountains because you know if you're if your gut is telling you not to go for the summit because the weather is bad, but you want to impress that girl back home, or maybe even if it's sponsors, you know, like you have these sponsors that are kind of like, they want you to summit because that's good for them and their brand. And that drives you to then go for the summit when in your heart, you know, you shouldn't have. That is a clear example of when the want and need for external validation has led you to make a bad decision in my mm-hmm. opinion. And yeah, nobody's immune to it. So be aware of it and just try to minimize the impact it has. And the last one is the last lesson I have is kind of an obsession for going big and doing the next big thing. Um, again, I, this is my seventh uh, ski season this year, so I'm still relatively new into it. And especially in the first probably three or four, maybe even five years, I definitely had a kind of a chip on my shoulder wanting to prove myself that like I can get into this sport and I can do these big things and I can do it in, you know, like the first five years or whatever. Um, And so I definitely like looking back, I've definitely done some things that I'm like, wow, that was uh, pretty ballsy. And I, I'm sure looking back that I got pretty lucky in that. Like there were some lines I skied on Denali and that was my third year skiing that I, you know, I slid out on blue ice over a Bergschrund on one of them. And I, at the time I kind of wrote it off of like, Oh, like that was, that was pretty weird. Like slid out on blue ice, got my edge back under me and then, you know, just skied the rest of it. But looking back, I'm like, man, I had no idea that there was blue ice under that snow and I could have easily just slid right into that Bergschrund and never you know, been, been found. Exactly. So <laughs> kind of mm-hmm. getting back to the, the lesson of an obsession for going big and doing the next big thing, I would definitely just warn folks to be okay with, you know, like taking time in between big objectives. And one of my, um, ski mentors. His name's Mike Marolt. Um, he lives in Aspen. 
his brother Steve and then Jim Guile and him, they were the first to ski an 8,000 meter peak, the first Americans to. And so I've looked up to him for a long time and he's kind of become a mentor figure for me. But I went and talked to him the day after I fell and something he told me like really stuck with me. And he basically said that he could just even just watching my social media and the things that I was posting that I was doing, he kind of alluded to seeing my trajectory to the accident. Like he, in his head, he was just like, this guy is doing all these big, pretty gnarly things and he's doing them back to back to back without taking time to kind of like absorb each one and really debrief, you know, like, did I do everything right? Or were there mistakes I made? Um, And so he kind of told me, you know, like, it's okay to slow down, slow down, you don't need to go big every day in the mountains. Um, And it's, you know, it's hard, like, I really enjoy like, that's the kind of skiing that I really enjoy is, you know, like big, steep committing stuff that kind of looks impossible and then you do it and you know there's a huge reward in that but I definitely was just going back to back to back on these really big objectives and not absorbing the lessons learned from each one and so that that would be my final kind of lesson is and there's obviously much more to it but those were the three main negative uh, patterns that I saw leading into this. Again, the first one was a normalization of high risk situations that eventually led into me being very complacent in a high risk scenario. Um, The want and need for external validation, and then the obsession for going big and doing the next big thing. Um, So those are my biggest takeaways. And uh, we're all, nobody's immune to those things. Um, And if, Anybody, you know, kind of thinks that they deal with those or like we all have an ego. If you think it gets in the way of your decision making. Um, I definitely encourage people to reach out to me. It's not a comfortable thing to talk about. Um, like nobody wants to tell others like, oh, I'm egotistic. You know, like that's not a that's not a comfortable thing to say, but we all have it um, to a certain degree. So if anybody is dealing with those issues, I'm definitely open to um, chat. Definitely the biggest thing from this incident was I wanted it to be a net positive in my life. You know, I got extremely lucky, uh, and others might not be lucky. So it really would be a tragedy if I just shook this incident off as like, Oh, you know, whatever. It was just an accident. Wasn't my fault. Um, so that, that's been a big thing with it is I want to make sure that I, internalize the lessons and it's taken me some time to kind of be ready to hopefully get other people aware of those negative um, patterns and hopefully they can avoid uh, the mistakes I made and you know not everyone will be as lucky as I am. That's right, he was really, really lucky. Matt generally does not ski with an ice axe because he believes he shouldn't be skiing in terrain if he needs his ice axe out. He'd rather be down climbing. He also reports wearing a helmet during this event and is convinced it very likely saved his life. Thank you, Matt, so much for being on my podcast. If you like my podcast, please consider donating on Patreon. 
Just $5 a month gets you lots of extra sharpened content. And $5 a month might not be a lot for you, but it's a lot to me. Thank you so much to everyone who has supported me thus far. Thank you to Rocky Talkies and the American Alpine Institute for supporting my show. And thank you to the American Alpine Club for believing in my podcast mission. Also, don't forget to sign up for the American Alpine Institute's $1,000 tuition voucher on my website, thesharpenpodcast.com. This $1,000 tuition voucher is transferable and expires in December 2024. The drawing will be May 15th. The American Alpine Club podcast is your guide to the climbing community. They're digging into the ideas that shape climbing, from trends in climbing accidents to place-based connections, or navigating grief and mental health in mountain sports. They're sharing stories from the pillars of our climbing community, the hot advocacy issues, the philosophies behind Ascend, and the motivations and methods of community change makers. You can find the American Alpine Club podcast on Spotify, SoundCloud, or Apple Podcast. Subscribe today. And as always, remember, play hard and be smart.